Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was booted. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano. Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, fam. I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women, like, especially when it comes to Black women. The way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean, it's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. 
we're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am that host, that woman who calls herself a, a Greek and Roman mythology podcast, even though she doesn't really care for Rome that much and basically never talks about it, save for Ovid. Liv, I, I'm Liv. I'm the host. I also ramble and desperately prefer Greece. But not this month. <laughs> no. This month, Augustus demands respect. So, Rome. Here we are, we're going to talk about Rome. You see, it's August. Do you know why August is called August? It's one of the more obvious months, that's for sure. Because yes, you guessed it, August is named for none other than Augustus, Octavian, the first emperor of Rome. He who, along with his beloved (laughs) Julius Caesar, I actually don't mean it that way, I just had to say beloved like that, retconned himself into the mythology of Aeneas. That famed man of Troy, who I guess wasn't so famed before Rome. And since August is named for Mr. Rome himself, Octavian, or again, Augustus, the name he took when he became emperor, we're going to dedicate the month to episodes surrounding Rome, some of its mythology, and even my very first Roman play. And you can all thank my wonderful assistant producer, Michaela, for this idea. And by the way, you know, she's also my assistant producer now. Yay, Michaela! But the best part about this little Roman month that we're going to enjoy together is that we're starting it out with the real professionals. Not me, because, again, Greece. No, we're starting with the women who actually know Rome. The always lovely partial historians, Dr. Rad and Dr. G. Now, I've had these two wonderful women on the show before. We've talked Cleopatra, and then we've, found, we've talked the first kings of Rome because they wrote a book called Rex. But a while back, we actually started recording a couple of bonus Patreon episodes. Just now and then, we'll be doing some more. It's kind of infrequent. But we are comparing mythologies of Rome and Greece in them. It's been really fun, just these casual retellings of myths to see how they compare between the two cultures. And, well, this is one of those episodes. So if you are one of my wonderful patrons already, you might have already heard this episode. But given we're devoting August to stories of Rome, you will want to refresh yourself on the foundation myths of that little region to the West. And by little region, I mean, you know, one of the most enormous ancient empires. But hey, they're not Greece, so we've got to keep them in their place. Dr. Rad and Dr. G came to tell me all about the foundation myths of Rome, which frankly are, for once, far more intricate and detailed than Greece, but there's a good reason for that. The founding myth of Rome, or myths rather, because there are multiple, is the founding of the Roman world entirely, the Roman Republic and then later the Empire, whereas Greece wasn't really any kind of unified place until much later. So instead, 
On my end, I told the partial historians the founding myth of Athens, which, well, is considerably shorter and simpler. And, well, when I'm not scripted, I play a little fast and loose with my retellings. All to say, I have kept in my own section that afterwards retells the founding myth of Athens, as it appeared in the original Patreon episode, but today is really about what the partial historians had to share with me about Rome, which fortunately is most of the episode because mine was really short. And again, because Rome's founding mythology... Wow. If you thought that it was just the Aeneid, <laughs> like kind of like I did. No, I mean, I knew there was more. About- God, there's so much more. There are layers, generations of mythos. It's kind of wild. And I'm just so thrilled that I had the partials to share it with me. And now with you all. From their Trojan origins to boys raised by a wolf and brothers who kill one another or just the one <laughs> to, well, seriously disturbing stuff because it's Rome. This is episode 222, Augustus Demands Respect, Rome's Foundation Myths with the Partial Historians. Welcome to a special collaborative episode with the Partial Historians featuring Dr. Rad and... Dr. G. Hello. And today we are joined by fellow Lady Pod Squad member... Liv Albert, who just got distracted by her cat coming in and screaming. You're going to have to shush. <laughs> we can keep all this in. Loop in. <laughs> but yes, Liv Albert, let's talk with baby. <laughs> No worries at all. So today we are going to have another casual chat about the myths of our two favorite civilizations. And today the theme is foundations. (laughs) Exactly. So we're going to tell you about the story of Rome Live. And it makes no chronological sense for us to go first, but we're, We're just going to go in there. Yeah. <laughs> just because it. that's how Rome does things. We just take things that belong to Greece, really. Yeah. <laughs> Rome's number one for Rome. Although this story, oh, I don't know if it's, I mean, it might have some Greek connections. I'll let you decide. Liz. That's true. That's true. I mean, if we go, let's, maybe she, maybe she should do like the slightly longer version, not as in you're taking up your time, but as in the, the slightly Greekened up version. The Greekened up version. Yeah. Oh, well, in that mm. case, it all begins with the Battle of Troy. Mm. <laughs> that old thing. That, that old Greekened up not. version. But not many people have heard about it. So we really no. have to go into detail about this, you know? Yeah. 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 It's Small, really like under the radar yeah it is um not many people were there and people certainly don't talk about it um, <laughs> but there was this guy Aeneas and he decided to pick up his old father and carry him on his back and made his way to Italy via Phoenicia what did he do with uh with his wife yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a great question because he, I mean I mean the real thing is that he left Dido and then Dido uh, killed herself so that's terrible daddy um, being the queen of carthage that would be not the queen not of the carthage. singer who sang that really sad song on love actually but you do you know that she sang sorry now i'm going to go on a tangent did you know yeah. she sang songs related to that dido though 
she like wrote songs for that story they're this great. would make so much sense it really yeah, i found yeah. them and i named two different aeneid episodes after dido lyrics nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> we're gonna have to search out these songs now because she does sing about sad things so it would make mm-hmm. sense for her to be a sad queen abandoned by her trojan lover yeah so aeneas yeah. being the i don't know ball of dicks that he is leaves <laughs> and heads into italy and you know starts a family has a great time whatever generations pass because <laughs> uh there's a, a problem with chronology and timelines yeah actually. there's an awkward gap yeah <laughs> awkward gap. one of my favorite things where it's like okay so aeneas goes and he does so much and it lays it's like supposed to be this whole big founding story and then it's like and then like 400 years later in a really yeah. different location actually <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, somebody the, from that line. I love the fact that out. yeah, I love the fact that the Romans couldn't even like smooth out those bumps. <laughs> they couldn't no. think of a way to explain it apart from look, there were a lot of kids and grandkids after this. <laughs> you just have to accept that fact. I mean, the whole point of Aeneas coming to Italy was that he actually probably could have stayed with Dido in Carthage, except for the fact that he got a bit of a, a reminder that you know you have a destiny. <laughs> Mars swoops down and is like, boy. Boy, you're in the wrong location. Don't <laughs> start something here. You won't be able to finish it. Exactly. He's like, oh man, but I like this chick and everything. Exactly. That's why he has to choose his destiny over love. Anyway, generations pass. Mm. <laughs> Aeneas is long dead, and the Greek connection is mostly severed by that point. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, we're in a place called Alba Longa, mm. which is nearish Rome, but not Rome. Yeah, close, but mm. not quite. Mm. It's to the south. It's in the hills. It's where the popes go for their summer getaways. So it's a nice location, mm. um, lovely spot. And anyway, there's this uh, guy called Numitor, and he's in charge of this place. He's the king. And his brother Amulius is a bit jealous and decides to push him out of power, but doesn't push him out of power so much as... Um, not to the extent of killing him. No. So Numitor lives, but he's been pushed out. Yeah. And Mulius starts his rule. And it's not really a great start for him because he's obviously highly jealous of his brother to start with, but also his brother continues to live. And so it's problematic. So he's trying to figure out what to do with all of the relations. It's like, what do I do with these nieces and nephews who are potentially an issue? Yeah. And those nieces, they're the big threat because they could bear a son if he doesn't do something about it, quick smart. So best thing to do is to place the niece, Rhea Sylvia, into the cold of Vesta because they have to be virgins. So there's no way to have a baby in that scenario. So that solves that problem. Exactly. If a man tells you to cross those legs and not have a baby, you the cannot have a baby. Yeah. It's like a magical rule. Yeah. Yeah. For God. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, whilst that might apply to mere mortals... Rhea Sylvia out and about one day, and she is spotted by the god Mars. Also a terrible, terrible individual. Yeah. Like most male Greek gods, he has an issue with keeping it in his non-existent pants. Not aware of in boundaries. In Greek, he's actually not that bad. Wow. Well, just okay. goes to show what the Greeks know about it. So the Romans <laughs> took that one and made it worse. Rome was like... Aries, he's too chill. We're going to rename him Mars. We're going to make him awful. Yeah. Yeah. And so something really seriously tragic happens in that Rhea Sylvia is raped by this god. 
And of course, in these scenarios in the ancient world, it's never something that you can just forget about. You always get pregnant. Yeah. Uh, every single time. Yeah. Like every time. It's incredible. I, I like to think of it as being like an episode of the Gilmore Girls where anybody who has sex accidentally falls pregnant. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I mean, I suppose I've always put it down to whatever makes a god a god. Also mm, means true. they do not miss. He shoots, he scores. Yeah. 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 Oh. <laughs> Sorry. It, it is. It is awful. It is awful. Yeah. So basically, she obviously would probably prefer to put it in the past, forget it never happened, or whatever. But she can't because she's pregnant. And gradually, people start to become aware that you know what? I don't think that is a beach ball under that garment that you're wearing, young lady. Wait a minute. Yeah, she does go to her mum, and she's like, "What do I do? I'm pretty sure I'm 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 preggers. What? How do I?" I mean, the cold of Esther. Um, <laughs> help. Slight snag. Yeah. <laughs> help snags. Um, and her mum's like, just pretend you're ill. <laughs> and that's her mother's advice. And like, don't worry. Just, you know, retreat to a chamber and say you can't come out to perform professional duties and it's going to be fine. We'll figure no it out. No one will ever notice. Yeah. yeah. People notice. I mean, if it was a time of COVID, nobody would notice. Everyone would be like, yep, lockdown. That's what you should be doing. True. Yeah. 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 Two years later, be like, what are these? What are those things? (laughs) Yeah. But obviously at some point this is going to come to a resolution of she can't just hide away forever. And one way or another, the pregnancy is discovered. She gives birth and she gives birth to twin boys. Mm. Mm. An even greater threat to Amulius's rule than he could have even anticipated. Yeah. This is terrible. So he immediately orders for those two boys to be placed and drowned in the river. I'm seeing things here. I'm like, this is the story I didn't actually know. So my brain is just slowly making these connections of the to the things that I do know. So yeah, thank you. yeah, yeah. So, so we're gonna come. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's a very Moses-y like story. But these babies are placed in some sort of basket device, and they are placed in the river. But the river possibly was flooding at the time and I think the soldiers who were placed in charge of this task maybe also weren't super enthusiastic to be baby murdering, murderers yeah, yeah. murdering babies yeah not I mean cool. that's kind of nice exactly so they yeah. didn't put them like right in the center they didn't like throw them into the river or something they kind of just put them around the edge and as the flood waters recede whilst the babies have been carried along a little bit they're actually eventually left on dry and therefore safe ground Mm. Only to be discovered by a she-wolf. Mm. <laughs> I mean, if I could howl, I would, but I have no idea how. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bad. I'm always happy to be the loud one. <laughs> yeah, okay. So the she-wolf comes along. And again, probably not a coincidence because there are connections between this type of animal and the god Mars. So mm. maybe this is his alimony. Mm. <laughs> it's his way of looking after the kids. Um, she doesn't eat them, which is a surprise, yeah. one, but she also feeds them, which mm. is the second surprise. Yeah. Uh, and that's how they get their nourishment in the beginning. Breast is We've best. all seen the pictures. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. Uh, now, of course, a she-wolf might be able to provide you with breast milk for a certain amount of time and presumably would also provide you with protection, but babies need other things, Liv. They do, yeah. I don't have yeah. one, but I think I know enough. Yeah, us either, but we we have heard. We've seen things. 
Stories have been told. Yeah. And luckily, eventually a local shepherd comes along named Faustulus. Now, this is where there may be some interesting overlaps between the story of the she-wolf and the story of Faustulus, who eventually will come across the babies and be like, hey, I think I'll take these babies home. And that is that his wife may have been a bit of a party girl in her past, or maybe even a sex worker of some description. We're not really sure. But certainly the term to refer to a she-wolf may actually, it's, it's very similar to the Latin for a woman of loose character. Mm. <laughs> so maybe it was she that actually helped to look after them and oh. gave them nourishment, which would... Not actually a wolf? I know. Very disappointing. <laughs> We have to pop bubbles sometimes. <laughs> and I know that everyone has been thinking up at this point in time that a wolf was actually responsible for saving these twins, but there you go. That's the kind of reality that you get on the partial historians. <laughs> Disappointing. <laughs> uh, anyway, so they don't know their backstory, obviously. And so, again, time passes where we don't know much about their youth or anything like that, apart from the fact that they're very strong physical specimens, as you would imagine, being the children of Mars. Yeah, so they grow up, they become warriors, um, they learn they learn best about... Friends for yeah. a really long time, right? Absolute best friends, nothing yeah, in between them. They've mm. only got each other, you know. <laughs> Um, you know, they live with this shepherd and it's nice and all, but, you know, they get a bit like into the politics of the area. Mm. And so everybody knows that Amulius got to that throne by nefarious means. And so these two get involved, Romulus and Remus, they have names. Uh, <laughs> Notable names. Notable names, yeah. These two get involved in some of the guerrilla warfare going on in the local region to try and depose Amulius and put Numitor back on the throne of Alba Longa. Yeah, they, and they seem to be a bit of like a leading a bit of a gang in a sense, like a teenage gang, you know, so they're like, here come the Jets, yeah, the Jets back in town. <laughs> <laughs> Wandering through the forest and you never know what you're going to come across. Exactly. And they're actually quite successful. Uh, Numitor gets his throne back, Amulius gets chucked out. And then Romulus and Remus realize that they've got this whole band of hooligans that follow them places, but they don't really have anywhere where it's okay for them to live. Because if they stay in Alba Longa, they're going to sort of interfere with Numitor's right to rule. So they're like, we need to find our own place. And by this stage of the story as well, the revelation of their true identity has come about. You know, mm. of course, naturally, when you see twin boys as Numitor, you're like, wait a second. <laughs> You're almost the exact age of the babies that would have been exposed about, I don't know, 18 years ago when my daughter gave birth. I think that you might be my grandchildren. Yeah. So, really but they want independence. Ray Sylvia's eyes. Yeah. They want independence. They want independence. So they end up, you know, having a wander around and being like, hmm. I wonder where we could potentially set up our shop because we can let, you know, our grandfather have his own space and we'll have our own space. And they eventually choose a hill or a couple of hills next to a malaria infested marsh. Mm. They're like, that'll do. Real estate, location, location, location. They knew this, they knew this back in ancient Rome. They're like, <laughs> there's nobody here. It's going to be great. Yeah. Malaria. It's good. Yeah. yeah. And they're like, now mm. we just need to figure out exactly where we put the foundation stone. Mm. Like, where do we actually go? 
all right. It's an so important moment, yes. We need to consult the gods. We need to look for a sign. And the Romans, uh, at least later in their history, seem to have a really strong connection with the Etruscan people. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, fam. I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women, like, especially when it comes to Black women the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean, it's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. this is where the Etruscan stuff starts to get woven into the story because the method that Romulus and Remus use in order to figure out where they should place the city exactly is to read the signs of the birds is to use the auspices. So you divide up the sky into a whole bunch of like quadrants and then you sort of look at how things move and you make some judgment calls and it's all very technical. And (laughs) It sounds wild. (laughs) Technical and confusing. Yeah, (laughs) it is. It's very confusing. And Remus sees six vultures or eagles. And he's like, aha, that's the sign. It should be here. And Romulus reveals himself to be a little bit of a douchebag at this point because he sees Remus running across from where Remus has been sitting on another hill, come across to his hill, and Remus is like, I've seen six. And Romulus is like, amazing, I've seen 12. And his gang on his heel immediately back him up, even though he's seen nothing. Yeah. And so, so so that ends up being the place where they're going to found the city of Rome. Now, the issue is about the argument that arises between these twin brothers. There are actually lots of different versions of exactly what happens next. Probably the famous one is that they just get into a fight because they can't decide, you know, whether they actually are going to go ahead and found the city in this location or not. And in in that fight, Romulus kills Remus. However, there are other versions like they start, you know, laying down city walls and Remus is like jumping backwards and forwards over Romulus's wall and like mocking him. Disrespectfully being like, this is a stupid wall (laughs) and you're a liar and this is not where the city should be. Yeah. Romulus is like, wow. This is what I think of your wall. And Romulus is like, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? This is what you think of my wall? Well, this is what I think of you. And that's how they end up getting into a fight that ends in death. But either way, generally speaking, Remus ends up dead. I mean, that's the salient fact in this story, yes. that these two have been together for a very long time. Yeah. They're twins. They come from the same womb. Yeah. They have the same father. Mm-hmm. And in this moment, Romulus does the dirty and ends up getting to live. Absolutely. And so he ends up being the one to maybe give his name to this place or maybe not <laughs> because there are lots of different theories about why Rome becomes Rome. And Romulus, let's face it, it's probably a totally fictional character. And so the name might have been just something that was given to him when the Romans decided to make up this story about themselves. 
But the next part is the part that's always fascinated me the most in this myth. And that is Romulus looks around and he's like, well, I have a small gang, but I'd rather have a large gang because otherwise it's not going to really be a city. And so he makes Rome essentially a place of asylum. Hmm. Yeah, so he sort of puts out the call. If you're not accepted anywhere else, if you don't have a place to live, if your previous city has thrown you out for crime, boy, do I have a deal for you. Come and live on this hill over here next to this malaria-infested marsh. Exactly, just like runaway (laughs) slaves or people who have committed crimes or people who are just asocial, don't fit into the community, made some bad choices in their life, start a new identity. This is the place for you. And that is the foundation of Rome. Yeah, so it's really weird because we're very certain because of the archaeology that Rome existed hundreds of years before 753 BCE when the Romans say this all happened. And most historians agree that Romulus and Remus are completely fictional characters. And so at some point, at some in some way, the Romans decided to tell this story that the foundation of their city is based on murder between family members and that the founding members of their city are the rejects that nobody else wanted. (laughs) It's so interesting to me because it's just so incredibly different from the way that the Greeks tell myths. Yes. Like for all people like to say that Rome stole everything from the Greeks, basically everything to do with their mythology suggests not that at all because they're not, they don't resemble one another. It's so interesting. And, but it is so interesting to be like, well, we're going to completely make up a mythical founding. So we, we really want it to make us look good. Yeah. So let's go ahead and go with fratricide and just like all of the rejects of all around and that'll be Rome. Now, do you know, like, does the Aeneas bit come at the same time or is that tacked on later? It seems to be tacked on later. And obviously Virgil is the most famous example of Mm -hmm. this tacking on. And we think the story predates Virgil, but it's also not that common as well. It's kind of like we've got these competing foundation stories and this they sound that- like competing, which yeah. is yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like we just want to we want to wedge the Trojan War in, like just like it doesn't really fit, but we're just gonna like jam it in. <laughs> and they want the Venus of it all, right? They want the mm. connection to the goddess Venus and to yeah. That's well, awesome. and also if and you they think are, about they have to explain how Greek stuff ends up in Italy because yeah. it's been there for a long time. Yeah. So the Greek influence in the South is present, real, and massive, and and. Romans and Italians understand that. They're like, they're different people. Where did they come from? So they've got to have a narrative for that as well. So Something impressive would be good. And also if you think about when Virgil is obviously crafting the Aeneid, as I'm sure you're aware because you spent a long time (laughs) with that, it's it's obviously also telling the story of a man that has an affair with, okay, I'm going to use a completely anachronistic term, but essentially an African queen and does the right thing leaves her and goes and does his duty by the state. I'm using flesh rabbits here because that's super anachronistic, but it is kind of a bit of a, also a bit of a dig at Mark Antony being like, see, if you did the right thing, you should have just had your way with Cleopatra and then on your way, you don't hang around and become more, (laughs) you know, involved with her. That's not how this works. (laughs) 
You know, I love that all of it is just like a commentary on people they're mad at, basically. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's, yeah, it's so interesting to me. And I mean, the Greek one, like, I'm also choosing to discuss yours further because the Greek one is so short by comparison to, and I say Greek, I was going to go with Athens because obviously the other big difference with Greece is that like it was no, not a unified place. Yes. And it just happens to be that the longest, you know, origin story that we have, which is still not very long at all, uh, is <laughs> Athens. But it is kind of similar in, in, in the way of it's, there's like another piece kind of tacked on later. Mm. Um, and then it's, it still has like the kind of, the same kind of general idea, but, but a lot. I don't no, know. please tell tell us Let's the story. Do why, don't, yeah. why don't I tell you what I'm talking about? <laughs> um, so the founding of Athens is so very simple and so much more connected to the gods. It's very much just like a, there. It's kind of like there's already a city here, but how, what are we going to name it and who are going to be its first kings kind of thing? Or there's going to be a city here. There's no real determination as to why that's a particularly good spot. I think they just see a nice hill and they're like, we like to put Acropolis's Acropoli on hills. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and so like, let's do it here. But the real issue comes into play of which god is going to be the patron god or goddess of this new city. They, you know, they think it's going to be a big one. So they've got to get that sorted right away. And so in this case, um, there's going to be a contest. Obviously, you have to make the gods compete against one another. And Poseidon is always competing to name cities and he never wins. He does win like maybe a couple of times, but he mostly <laughs> loses. And so Poseidon goes up against Athena. And <laughs> is it because he's a sea god and it's like, you can't have a city, mate. It's not, <laughs> it's not, it's not going to work. You have the ocean. <laughs> I mean, you know, he would go ahead and yell at you about horses, right? Like, well, cities need horses, okay? And I'm also the god of horses. But I think it's just that Poseidon to me is like, he is the most, what is the word I want? Like, just out of control, just like monstrous. He is the most over the top, like can't rein him in. He's the most violent and destructive god, both in terms of like what he is the god of. He's the god of the sea and earthquakes. He's destructive as hell. But also like also like personality wise, he, you know, is just he's the most violent of gods. When he assaults a woman, it's horrific. When Zeus does it, it's because he's one of those guys that thinks she wanted it. You know, it's like it's just a completely different dynamic. And so I think it's just like, no, what kind of city would be dedicated to Poseidon? It, it would end up to be horrifying like he is, which is a spoiler about what I'm about to explain. Poseidon <laughs> never wins. But so they go up against each other and they there's a bunch of different variations on like what the deal is. But basically they have either one person who's going to be the judge. It might be this guy named Keycrops. Or it might be all the gods, or it's a combination, and Keycops makes the gods do it before for him. Whatever it is, Poseidon and Athena go up against one each other, one another. I can't speak today. I'm not <laughs> <any> talking. <laughs> uh, Poseidon and Athena go up against one another, and they each have to like say or or pledge what they are going to provide to this city, and you know whoever has the better thing to provide is going to be the winner. And so Poseidon comes in first. And he's like, boom, he hits his trident on the earth, on the top of the Acropolis, and out comes a saltwater spring. Super practical, Poseidon. Yes, so useful. Salt water. (laughs) (laughs) And then in some cases, he also gives them a horse just for good measure. 
Yes. Like the first horse, so presumably that from it they can make more horses, but you would think there two would be yeah. more necessary. I mean, it would be nice to have the second horse for the reproduction. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but he's just like, look, horses will exist if you pick me. You will have this salt water spring on the top of the Acropolis. Aren't I incredible? <laughs> and then Athena comes in and she's like, you're an idiot. And also, I'm going to give you the olive wood or olive tree. But an olive tree doesn't just provide you with a nice tree with shade. It'll give you the fruit. And from the fruit, you can make oil and have the food. And then it'll give you the wood afterwards. And oh my God, look how practical. I am so much better than Poseidon. And so obviously everyone saw that. Poseidon in theory, you know, like horses are good. If he had done freshwater, like, I don't know if he has control over freshwater. Maybe he just doesn't. But also I'm curious and I don't know the answer to this of like, because there's there's a spring up on the Acropolis or there, you know, was in ancient times that they accredited as this thing. And same with an olive tree. And I, wh- how could there physically be a saltwater spring on the Acropolis is my question. Maybe it's hmm. possible. I don't know science. I think it would be. If it was drawing upon like mineral salt as it was part of the flow. So okay. I think- so it wouldn't be like ocean salty. It would just like have a saltiness that they would be like, well, this is the ocean. Yeah. Kind of like a and soda stream. But that reminds, <laughs> that reminds me of uh, that salty bit over there. Not as salty, yeah. but definitely salty. <laughs> definitely same thing. Okay, cool. Same God. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, so basically Athena still wins because obviously she does. And... Their uh, Keycrops becomes the first king, and he also has a snake for the, his bottom half, which somehow is not like a relevant point. It's just <laughs> like a fact about him. And so these like early gods of Athens or early kings of Athens are just half snake, which I Ooh. find interesting. And That's it's also fragmentary or told by much later people that it's often like, what was the point? Uh, did this get added later? Who? What is going on here? And it's so interesting because he is the this first king, snake body guy. But then there are like other competing stories for who gets to be these early kings and also have a snake body. You know, one of the most disturbing and it's a late addition in terms of what survives is this idea that some of the first people of Athens were you know, autochthons and how they were grown from the earth is that Athena had called upon Hephaestus to make her some stuff for this new city and Hephaestus came and according to, you know, these surviving sources, which again, I think that like Pseudopolydorus might be one of the earliest ones. Like it's very late um, and it's basically like, oh, Hephaestus just got uh, super turned on by being asked to help Athena make some weapons. <laughs> and he came after her. But, you know, Athena is like a very good virgin. She would never. So instead, he just like ejaculates and it hits her leg and she brushes it off and it lands on the ground. <laughs> and then, yeah, your faces <laughs> are accurate there. It lands on the ground. And then from it, Erichthonius is born and he's one of the first gods who's also snaky in certain ways i was gonna say i feel like there's the euphemism at play here it's like you're telling me the king has the his bottom half is all snake all right right. i'm also just disturbed by the amount of stories in greek mythology which involve just like random semen you know just being just being flicked off or tossed away or hitting something (laughs) 
<laughs> landing in the sea after exactly. having been, you know, castrated off of a god. Exactly. Absolutely. It's like, I mean, I guess they didn't have tube socks, but come on, people. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. And I just love the way where it's like, somehow this story came about, but the, its main purpose is to say like, okay, Athenians are, you know, native to the earth. They are grown of that earth, but also they want to be children of Athena. And Hephaestus is also a patron god of Athens, just Mm. not the more important one. And so they want to be children of these two important patron gods of their city, but also Athena is an avowed virgin, so they can't ever be like the actual mother. So they have to go up with this story (laughs) that like makes them connected to both these gods in the most bizarre and gross way. (laughs) And it's just like, I mean, it, the thing about Athens is that it came about so late in the grand scheme of like early Greece. So, so much of its mythology is kind of like tacked on, but it's also the place where we have the most information. And cause then they, you know, this is all the origins of Athens and that's way back in the day. And then they have some mythology attached to, how they then got to Theseus, who they also count as their founder, but he kind of, they say, founds, you know, sometimes they say he founds some, they're an early form of democracy. He's the last king and he doesn't, you know, he makes it for the people after him, but he, you know, he's a good king, but we also gave him this story where he's an absolute monster of a human for the entire time, but here he's this great last king of Athens before we gave it back to the people and there's so many interesting things attached to it but also it's so like Athens has got to be one of those more tacked together um you know mythologies but at the same time it is still so not it's still so different from Rome's like you can tell the intentions behind Rome's whereas Athens is kind of like I don't know we just kind of want to seem cool (laughs) you know like what are we going to do with these stories and is I mean, my first question, I suppose, is, is Theseus ever depicted as having a snake bottom? No, he's like supposed to be so many generations later that the snakes are gone. Like there's only a, like two or <laughs> wow. three snake kings. There's Kecrops and then there's there's two competing kings where either there are two kings, one named Erichthonius and one named Erechtheus, or it's the same guy and sometimes he's got a different name. It's like, so there's not, it's not clear on how many lines of snake kings there were but there are at least two maybe three and then it seems like the snakiness is gone there isn't really an explanation it's just it's great and then there's like you know there's incredible imagery of these half snake people and it i just ancient greek mythology is so bizarre in that way where it's like why did why do you have half snake people (laughs) they're not like any other half you know, like groups in mythology, centaurs are, you know, angry and bad for the most part. The minotaur is obviously meant to be dangerous. All these different half people or divine in some way, you know, mm. but the, these two snake kings of Athens are just kind of there. They're all right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry about those guys. <laughs> they got to warm up before they can do anything for the day. So it's fine, you know? <laughs> Well, and I think Athens too, like they just had to make themselves so ancient because they also wanted to connect themselves to the Trojan War in a lot of ways, right? Where they're not really in the Iliad, like they're not as old or they weren't as powerful enough back then to have actually really made it into many versions of the story. They're no Sparta or all this. So it's it's interesting to watch them also try to make themselves feel very relevant. Mm. 
So I guess we could say commonalities. There's a lot of weirdness in these stories. <laughs> there's definitely some disturbing elements to these stories. Indeed. Well, there's yeah. gods involved in both cases. That's so true. That, that's assault or attempted assault. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very true. Very true. But yeah, that's that's always a thing that has stood out to me about Rome. And it's something that I feel like speaks to what Rome later became as well. This idea that the Romans presumably had this opportunity to make themselves, you know, born of the soil or have like really deep ties to the area of Rome or something like that. And instead, they chose to make themselves up of people from the surrounding area. And of course, if you tack on, if you go a little bit further into Romulus's reign, and you tack on as well, the fact that there's the rape of the Sabines episode, where presumably most of the people that joined Romulus at first were men. I think it was actually specifically an asylum for men that he established. And then when they look around and go, wait a second, it's like the two <laughs> horse thing. Yeah, We've we, only got one horse. Yeah, this city isn't going to last <laughs> if, we, if we don't get some women around. And so there's that whole episode where they arrange to abduct and marry women from the surrounding area, specifically the Sabines, it would seem. And that's how they get women, according to the mythological. That, that's yeah. literally how they get women, period. Mm. Yeah. So, like yeah, it. basically Romulus, Romulus sends out envoys to the surrounding people and they're all like, please, you guys are so rough around the edges. You're like a bunch of thugs and criminals and rejects. Yeah, I want to marry my daughter to you. <laughs> you know they're not into it. And so instead, Romulus is like, fine, if you won't give them to me and you look down on me, I'll just steal them. So, yeah, uh, when every respectable city in the local area sort of declines this uh, incredibly uh, apparently generous offer from Romulus, <laughs> um, he, then, he then says, well, we're having a really important religious festival. Do you want to Actually, I come- think it's to Poseidon, isn't it? Well, I hope not. I have a feeling that it, I have a feeling that it is. We're going to we're going to have but... an important festival, and you're all invited. And people come out of like curiosity, being like, "What does a city of thugs look like?" Yeah. You know, like I want to take a look at that. And that's the mistake that people make. Yeah, is thinking that going to that festival is going to be okay because it's under a religious sort of ages, but it's not. Um, Romulus and the Romans break religious protocol and. Uh, steal a lot of women yep and then of course once the women have been stolen whilst their families are angry and there's a lot of toing and froing about you know how to handle this situation I think the underlying message although it does seem as though the places they were taken from do want them back but I feel like from the women's point of view, they also seem to either have been seduced into the idea that the Romans love them that much or they kind of know that it, their life has been irrevocably changed by being abducted, given that there is such a premium on obviously, you know, virginity and purity and all of that kind of stuff. So they end up staying and mm. they become, they do become the the mothers of the future generations. And this also ends up being incorporated into a Broadway musical called what? Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. And Ew. there is literally a song called The Sobbing Women where one of the guys tells his brothers, hey, this is how we can get some women. We'll just go into the local town and abduct them because it's recorded about Roman history and it'll work because once we keep them captive, they'll end up falling in love with us and it'll all work out. It's, yeah. a, really, it's a really cheerful song. Not okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. 
I just, I mean, the fact that Rome built their whole mythology around them being awful is like both surprising to me as somebody who knows Greek and also not surprising at all when I then think about what I know about Rome. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's exactly it. it. It seems a weird choice to obviously have fratricide at the heart of your foundation story. But then when you get to the period where the Romans are having those serious civil wars and all of that kind of stuff, you're like, well... Maybe it's not so crazy that this is the story you chose to tell about yourselves. Yeah, you can see where it's like, oh, it conveys our strength. We are willing to do the hard thing to like, you know, do what needs to be done or whatever. Wow. And then I love that Aeneas is so tacked on because he's like, (laughs) as much as he's obnoxious and awful, he's like objectively one of the least problematic parts, it seems to me. Yes. In in most respects. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Be like, oh, that guy. Sorry, real quick question, because I ask this of anyone anytime. Do you know what it was other than, I guess, just the goddess mother, like why Virgil or whoever ended up picking Aeneas? Ah, so this is possibly one of the theories is that it relates to Caesar. And Mm. um, obviously that line that goes back to Venus is very important um for Julius Caesar and Virgil is writing under Augustus so there is a a strong sense that the choice is a deliberate one in order to build that divine connection through into Augustus's own line and to really establish that as you know his leadership is part of an ongoing tradition of divine providence in association with Rome itself Mm mm-hmm I just, I find Aeneas in the Iliad so interesting because he seems like he's this character that really stands out in so many different ways. And then in the Iliad, he doesn't, you know, mm. like Venus or like Aphrodite saves him. She's, he's very explicitly her son. He is so connected to Achilles in that way of like, they're both sons of goddesses. They're the only sons of goddesses. Otherwise it's like always the sons of men, of gods all these different things that make him really stand out, like make him really so much like Achilles and just so interesting. And then in the Iliad, he is like not actually interesting. And then he goes on, they pick him, you know, to be this Venus connection, which is perfect. But to me, I'm like, well, then why is he in the Iliad like that? There's some missing piece from Greece that like explains why Aeneas is so special. And I, I want to know what it is. There's like a lot. <laughs> I just swear. Oh, well, I mean, that's just it, isn't it? There's so much of that epic cycle missing or there's bound to be a thousand other versions that we'll probably never know anything about. And maybe one of them yeah. holds the key. <laughs> that's the thing. Some There's something there. There's something that makes Aeneas special. <laughs> you need to find a cache of papyri. <laughs> oh. Could you imagine? (laughs) It would be amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this mini myth episode, Liv. Thank you. These are so fun. It's great. (laughs) Absolutely. We'll definitely, we'll have to think of another theme for uh, another one in a couple of months. (laughs) Yes. Oh, nerds, nerds, nerds. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. This month, we've got lots of more Rome to come. We're going to be looking at their mother goddess, who absolutely fascinates me. 
where to we're going to be looking at where the gods do and don't differ from their Greek counterparts or Roman gods that are entirely Roman, Roman stories that are entirely Roman when I can find them because I'm much better at researching Greece, but I'm going to do my best. We are going to look at how the Roman tragedian Seneca saw our girl Medea. <laughs> Obviously, that's the bit I'm most excited about because Medea. I've heard it's far more like visceral and violent even than my beloved Euripides. <sighs> Cannot wait. We do love Medea here. <laughs> so thank you to the partial historians for not only doing that Patreon episode with me back in the day, but for being happy for me to share it all with you on the regular podcast feed now. It, it I thought it was just the perfect introduction, especially because Rome's foundation myths are, they're really something else. They just, the... The formation and the the way that these stories survive isn't anything like Greece, and for that and other reasons, because I much I know Greece better, I could not have possibly done it justice. And as always, Dr. Rad and Dr. G just rocked it because those ladies know Rome. And speaking of, make sure you subscribe to their well Roman history podcast, The Partial Historians, because if you are ever thinking that my show is lacking in Roman content. They are the podcast you've been looking for. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert, or in this case, the partial historians. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians, and like I mentioned up top, is now the assistant producer of the show. What she's doing isn't actually changing. I just realized there's a much better and appropriate title that I could give her. <laughs> the podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a Patreon patron <laughs> where you'll get access to bonus episodes and more, including this and other episodes with the partial historians that will stay Patreon exclusive. <laughs> so visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. Thank you all. You're all the best. Rome is interesting sometimes, I guess. It helps when I have other people to tell me how interesting it is. Thank you, Dr. Rad and Dr. G. You're the best. I am Liv, and I, I love this shit. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! 
Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, fam. I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. 